Ray here. Welcome to episode 17, How to Get the Recognized Church, Part 2, and A Toast to the Queen. Happy to be alongside you uh, today, wherever you are in the world. As I record this, sadly, the Queen had just passed away, and I will personally miss her. I was introduced to the importance of the Queen early in my Air Force career. Uh, in, in pilot training, some of my instructor pilots were Brits, and uh, one of them had a picture of the Queen in his office, and I made a derogatory remark in front of him, and he very properly let me know as uh, the brash young American that I was out of line. Uh, and it was something that I didn't understand until years later. Now, one remark about the Queen from a confessional standpoint, I would stand with John Knox and, uh, and the Bible and say that women categorically are not, uh, are not uh, in line with the Bible if they are a civil magistrate. It's a requirement to be a man to lead in the civil part of Jesus's kingdom, just as it is in the ecclesiastical part. But like Knox, uh, we shouldn't take this to a personal level. It's not about uh, the queen. It's not her fault that she was queen any more than it was Deborah's fault uh, that she was a judge. And the queen executed her role quite well, I think. Now, the queen knew something that we forgot, and what we are trying to recover here in our little project, she knew uh, that she was a minister of Christ. She knew that as a queen, she had a king, and uh, she knew she was not ruling on her own behalf, and she was not just ruling on the behalf of her people. She was a minister of Christ. Uh, earlier in the week, I heard she was not doing well, and I was thinking that Queen Elizabeth is the last remaining element of Christendom today. I predict that everyone is going to talk about uh, how much class she had, and and they should. She was uh, classy. She was a gentle rebuke to how we dress, how we talk, how we act today. Uh, she just exuded dignity. But there was more to her than just class. Her, her, uh, her class came from her Christianity. So, to the queen. She got the, the victory today, September 8th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Well, I'll mention something else about the queen at the end, so uh, please hang with me until then. But we're going to talk about something the queen would appreciate. We're on part two of how to get the recognized church. How to get the recognized church. And the reason we're discussing the church is that it is our first step at a return to an institutionalized society. And, and I'm not talking about institutionalized the way it is today with man's institutions like uh, academia, uh, sports, medicine, uh, corporations, but instead institutionalized the way the Bible says so it, it's a different mindset. It's an old mindset that we're, that we are returning to, and that of public religion. So we need to have the the level of structured, connected society that we see in um, in Exodus nineteen. Really, is where it began, and throughout all the examples of the Hebraic uh, Republic, this um, the official public 
religion was understood, for example, in the early days of Puritan New England. So we're talking about the church, and you may be wondering, isn't the confessionalist aimed more at the civil magistrate? Uh, Well, the answer is no. I, I do talk about the civil magistrate a lot because it's been relegated to the secular world, even even by some Christians and even by some Reformed Christians. And we need to get it back. But let's not forget, we need the church as the functioning element in society first. The, the church brings the word publicly, uh, and, and that needs to happen before repentance comes. Uh, the church also influences the populace. One um, rich heritage that our country has is uh, is the early preachers uh, prior to the War for Independence, the Black Robe Regiments. He, these were pastors who knew the Bible and knew that Jesus was in charge. These, these fiery guys, these pastors who were preaching the things that brought about a war for independence, they, they were uh, bringing it to life. And I love how the Brits said it was it was their fault. It was it, they caused the war. One Brit called it the uh, the Presbyterian Revolt. So this is this is an an, uh, an example of the church being uh, a, a institution in society. Let me give you a quick quote about them from uh, a historian named B. F. Morris in the 1860s. He writes this. The ministers of the Revolution were, like their Puritan uh, predecessors, bold and fearless in the cause of their country. No class of men contributed more to carry forward the Revolution and to achieve our independence than did the ministers. By their prayers, patriotic sermons, and services, they rendered the highest assistance to the civil government, the army, and the country. You see, what what was relevant for us today, what we're talking about, is that the Black Robe Regiment was a societal institution, practically, if not officially. Now, some of them were in established churches because we did have uh, state churches in, in, uh, in the colonies, uh, but not all of them. The, the main thing is that they played their part as being part of society. So, a quick review of last time before we get into the meat here. Rather than use the term established church, I'm using recognized church, or sometimes I call it the institutional church. So we can think of the Church of England, except, uh, well, not liberal, and instead of established by the state, uh, established by Jesus Christ and recognized by the state. So last time we said that the plot twist in getting the recognized church, is that we already have it. We already have it because it's recognized by Jesus, and he's in charge of this whole thing. So trying to get an actual established church today would be kicking against the goads, um, I think. So rather than bump up against um, you know, the dug-in anti-establishment clause understanding that we have today, which is, which is wrong, by the way, um, uh, because it was, it was for the federal government and the states, as we already mentioned, they already had established um, um, religions. But anyway, instead of trying to get an established church, we simply act out the reality of the church's status before Christ. So we talked about being practically official. The, The church regains a seat at the societal table. Now, I hope you're seeing this as good news because it's something that the church can do. 
most likely you have some connections to other solid churches in your area. And, uh, and I do believe that the recognized church can, can come about uh, at the county level and at the state level. So last time we did talk about some practical things, but I intentionally reserved what is probably the sticky wicket uh, for today's discussion. And here's the sticky wicket. How do you get church leaders together and what criteria do you use to do that? How, how do you actually do this? How do, you, how do you get the band together? Well, there's a man that's quite good at this sort of thing, and his name is Jay Grimstead. Jay Grimstead, if you don't know, organized the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, and it's a glorious document. Uh, the, the, the statement is now used in conservative seminaries to help ground pastors in biblical inerrancy. It's a big deal. Now, because of this document and its acceptance, we're actually better prepared now than we were 150 years ago to resist higher textual uh, criticism. Now, I'm using Jay Grimstead and the uh, Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy as an example because I would say it's the closest thing we have to an official church council statement in my lifetime. And it's very useful, I think, as an operating template. Now, the way this whole thing got started was from a letter from Jay Grimstead to R.C. Sproul in 1977. These gentlemen... Uh, were both concerned about a trend uh, of their day, and that was seminaries teaching that the Bible is not necessarily inerrant. And so R.C. agreed with Jay that something needed to be done, so Jay uh, put together a conference, and he invited these men to speak. R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packard, Norman Geisler, John Gerstner, and Greg Bonson. So what Jay did was form a group of men he knew would faithfully articulate the problem and the solution and set a a, a course of action. So they had this initial conference. Core group, you know, set the tone and and laid out the doctrine. And uh, so, you know, after that was done, I imagine they got phone numbers and, and addresses of each other. You know, networking is nothing new. They didn't have email and, you know, no cell phones back then, but somehow they managed to to, uh, to, to get this done. Uh, so they involved the larger group by handing out homework to this larger group. And they said, okay, you guys, go home, do your work, and we'll, we'll meet back up. And uh, after, you know, an, an appointed time, Jay and his team organized a four-day working conference at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago, just outside the O'Hare Airport. Uh, It was Reformation Week, 1978. And once again, there was this core group who did most of the writing, but there were 270 Christian leaders in attendance. So, you know, you you had um, that core group and you had uh, the larger assembly. And I can speak from my own experience that this is a good way to do it. When I was on military staff and we had to create a large war plan, we used the same sort of construct. There was a small core group and they led and, you know, did most of the writing. And then the larger group provided input and they served a, a sort of a coordination role to uh, get the word out and, and uh, communicate back and forth. 
And this is how these things are done. It's how our Constitution was written. Uh, it's how the Westminster Confession was written. And uh, corporations do this. You know, so, but you, you got to have a core group. Now, I mentioned that J.I. Packard was part of this. I, I, you know, I love how this uh, English-born uh, Canadian brought in um, his own um, specialized emphasis. He, he suggested that the tone of the Chicago Statement would be of dignity. And I and it does. It it reads like something with some gravitas to it. So, um, you know, it's uh it's good to have different guys uh, contributing. Now, since the Chicago Council, there have been other councils that have produced statements. There was the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in 1988. Uh, we had the Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality in 2017, and most recently the Dallas. Uh, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice in uh, 2018. And all, all of these are good. Um, you, you read them, and, uh, and they're, they're pretty solid. But uh, there is still a limit to all of these statements that I noticed. I read them, and I, I noticed something. All of these documents say we. They say we are making this statement. And... Um, and they, they never say who we is. I mean, they, they kind of imply that they are Christians, but they don't say that they are coming as a unit, as a, as a covenanted body under the authority of Christ. And, uh, and because these are national conferences, they make the terminology very broad. So what I'm recommending is that we take the Chicago approach, um, but make it more local, more covenantal. Bring in some officialness to it. And don't call it a statement. Uh, you know, maybe call it a position or a finding as we enter, as the church interacts with the, with the civil magistrate. Bring in some jurisdictional geography. Make it uh, constituent-based so that, for example, the civil leaders of Iowa are listening to the church leaders of Iowa. I actually talked to Jay Grimstead about this uh, uh, a couple months ago. I called him up for this specific reason, and uh, uh, you know he's he's still going. He's uh, 87 years old, and um, uh, you know still uh, doing ministry out there in California. But I asked him about having councils and synods at the county and state level um, instead of these you know like national conferences, and he was very excited. And he was very supportive. And I, I think he's realized, that, well, he even said it, that the country is too big and it's too far gone. And, you know, I think we're all coming to that conclusion. So I say, you and me, where we are, and I'm talking to fellow pastors primarily, but this is going to take the prayer and support of all the church. Uh, where we are, list out who we know in our county, in our state, pastors from solid churches, and, you know, I think they should have a reformed understanding of, of society and culture, if possible. Um, and we're, we're going to need to be able to talk the this, this same dialect. I'll, I'll get into the criteria a little bit more later. But remember that core team. Remember Grimstead's team, Sproul, Bonson, Packard. Uh, we're probably not going to get guys like that, especially if we're going local. But that's okay. Um, uh, you know, as First Corinthians says, it's not... Uh, coming from our own reputation, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So 
so we are coming with the power of Christ. So go get a, co- uh, a core group, a small core group, like-minded pastors, and follow the Chicago approach of uh, a small meeting. I think you could even do that on Zoom today. And then, you know, some homework and prayer, and then call a local synod. For that local synod, though, we're going to need a larger group. We need a larger group because we're going to try to be practically official, practically institutional. So how do we do that? Well, for this, I'm going to go to another example. A fellow pastor of mine told me what they are doing in his town. This is what they did. They've, they've listed out all the churches, and they, they put them on an Excel spreadsheet, and they're working through them one by one. And I'm not sure what you know, the details of the process, but it's probably something like they start with the ones they know. And then uh, they ask around a little bit more. They look at churches' websites. They they read statements of faith. And it looks like if it's a possibility, uh, they'll give the pastor a call. And what they'll do is they'll categorize churches. Uh, There'll be uh, blue, red, yellow, and green. Blue means no contact yet. We don't know. Maybe we can work with them. Maybe we can't. Red is apostate, not true churches. They don't meet the criteria for a church. Now, here's here's one thing that I'll say, uh, and some people may disagree with me. Say you have a faithful congregation there in your county, but they are a member of an apostate denomination. I would not recommend affiliating with them. And it has to do with a covenantal connection they have beyond their immediate church. Uh, the denominations are church organizations, and there is a covenantal connection there. And, you know, that's why we, we Presbyterians, uh, for better or worse, we break off and have so many micro-denominations. But we believe that that unity comes through the purity of the Word. So uh, red is apostate churches. Yellow is the true church. Uh, so they're, they're true churches, but they're probably not interested in your project— for example, to really end abortion completely. With something like that, their theology is going to buckle under the weight of you know, you know some uh, prospect like that. So yellow, true church, probably not interested in working with you. Green, uh, this is the workable level of the true church. And, uh, and, you know, here I would say the guys don't necessarily have to be reformed, at least for the larger group. They don't necessarily have to be theonomic or covenantal in their official doctrine, but it would be good if they're thinking along those lines. They're thinking practically along those lines. For example, there's a non-Reformed Baptist in my area that doesn't use the term biblical law, but he still preaches and practices. And I I say amen. Uh, And what I've found is that many Christians and and good Bible-believing churches are practically Calvinistic in their view on God's sovereignty. They, they may have some unfortunate shortfalls, but, you know, they'll say amen to God being in charge. So the green is the, the churches that you can work with. But we still need some criteria. Let's talk about criteria. I just sort of gave the overall approach, but how do we sort of decide who is going to be the true church and who's going to be the ones that we can actually work with? Um, so the first rung, again, is a true church. But uh, the, out of that, we want to get those who would have the theological background and the desire to actually work with you. So first rung, true church, and I think Calvin is helpful here. He, he, has, he has three criteria. 
Uh, number one, that they faithfully preach the word. And implied here is a true understanding of the gospel. I think the five solos are a great tool. Any Protestant church should agree with the five solos. They may not agree with Tulip, but I think they'll agree with the five solas. So I, I would, uh, I'd say this is important for, for preaching the word. And I would also bring in biblical inerrancy here. So that's the first thing. Second thing is right administration of the sacraments. Does the church baptize only believers and their children, if it's a, you know, reformed? Uh, does the minister baptize? Does he actually baptize and not the fathers or friends? There's a lot of that going around. Uh, does it serve communion only to those who are in the church in good standing? Does it understand the nature of the Lord's table? And here I would say that the Lutherans, you know, they meet the bar. Their consubstantiation may not be the most biblically accurate, but it isn't heretical like the Roman church's view is. So we're, we're, remember, we're talking about a true church according to Jesus Christ, okay? And uh, I'm pretty sure that Luther is in. All right, the third thing, practice church discipline. This is the third category of a true church, and it's important for the faithfulness of God's Word and for preserving the unity and purity of the church. you got to have it. It doesn't have to be a full-up Presbyterian book of church order, but there needs to be an understanding and a commitment that unrepentant sin has to be dealt with publicly by the leadership of the church. So, to be a true church, preach the Word, write administration of the sacraments, and practice church discipline. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be reformed, but I think that these three criteria that Calvin used are helpful. Now, if they are a true church, they're in that yellow group, they meet the first rung, uh, what about the second rung? How, how do you get to green? Well, in my mind, not only uh, do, do you need to be a true church, but you want to be a church that you can work with. So again, I would look to the work of Jay Grimstead. He did a good job of bringing together not only true churches uh, and from a wide range of backgrounds, but but ones that could actually work together and agree on some very important things. And he did this by creating some documents. Uh, actually, the small group created the, the documents. And, uh, and so the larger groups had to agree with this. So Jay's got a great book titled Rebuilding's a civilization on the Bible, and I do recommend that book. It's more of a reference book, um, but uh, but yeah, go out there and get that book. It's got a number of documents that can be used as criteria on this level. It's it's like a Westminster Confession, but in different language, and uh, not quite as as extensive. So I'd recommend, and and what I plan to do is work with the core group, hash out a two page document that lays out the Protestant faith. You know, and then has some clear, robust biblical ethics, and uh, then if people can read and sign this document, these are your green churches. Now, I want to emphasize again: they don't necessarily have to be a reformed uh, denomination, but I think they have to have an overall uh, commitment to biblical law and to Jesus's reign in order to properly engage a civil magistrate in order to be a uh, societal institution. If you don't have that, I think you'll be going in circles. Well, bringing this all together, I'm not saying it will be easy, and I'm new at this. And those of you out there, many of you have been at this for years and know better than I the difficulties. Um, but, uh, but you know, we, we, we can do this by God's grace. I think parishioners. I think I would just encourage you to do what you can to support your pastor. 
and to give him time to work on this. Pray for your pastors and do what you can, you know, with your own purity and your own unity of the church, and that that will help. So it won't be easy, but I firmly believe it is possible at the county level and then at the state level to do this. We need a societal institutional church to bring back Christendom. And in the meantime, if we can't get a coalition, if we can't use these things that I've presented, you know, then then what do you do? Well, you just do it yourself. That's what John Knox did. And, and one man standing up for Christ can make a difference. And I would say that a pastor can come forward and represent the church of Jesus Christ, even as a singular pastor. But the best thing is to pray and to work towards a group of churches in a county, in a state that can form a local synod and advise the the, the uh, civil magistrate on critical issues as the church officially. Well, I want to return to Queen Elizabeth, and I, and I want to, to read for you something that is in line with what we've been preaching on the topic of social confessionalism. Now, not everything that Queen Elizabeth did or every part of what I'm going to read is biblical. I, I would, of course, disagree with the uh, Anglican form of church government. And, uh, and I would say that uh, the recognized church is a better approach than the established church. But that said, I think that you will find in what I'm about to read, and I'm about to read the oath of coronation that Queen Elizabeth took in 1952, I think you'll find something tangible, and I think you'll find something close to what we are looking for. This is, this is sort of what it sounds like. Here's the oath the Queen took in 1952. I solemnly promise and swear to govern the people of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, and of my possessions and the other territories to any of them belonging, pertaining, or according to their respective laws and customs. I will, to my power, cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all my judgments. I will to the utmost of my power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel. I will to the utmost of my power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law, and I will maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England. And I will preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches there committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law or shall appertain to them or any of them. The things which I have here before promised, I will perform and keep, so help me God. So I think we'll end with that today. And until next time, go and confess Christ publicly.